there are a lot of distinctives about churches. There are a lot of characteristics about churches. There are, there are a lot of things that, that identify what a church is, who a church is, what that church does, how that church functions. And we use them all the time. We don't even really think about it. We don't even pause or really stop to ask ourselves, is that who the church is? The frequent ones I hear as a pastor are probably the same things you hear and potentially even say. That church plays this type of music. It, it's, the, it's the radio station church. If you want to listen to that kind of music, then you go to that kind of church. That church does communion, or Lord's Supper as we call it. And if you want to go in a certain way, a certain tradition that you experience as a child, well, then you pick that church. That church wears coats and ties. That church, the pastor looks like he'd rather be at the beach. That church, the pastor looks like, I actually saw this one time on a social media post. The pastor looks like a cat coughed him up. I'm not real sure what it's all involved with that, but it's up maybe long hair and a, and a ragged flannel shirt, or I think was the overall indictment. That church is a friendly church, or that church is an unfriendly church. We, we, we think these things, we think these descriptives, um, but the reality is none of that actually describes what a church is or what a church should be. And in the book of 1 Thessalonians, as we've studied it, the, Paul, the apostle Paul, he keeps talking about the things he loves about the church in Thessalonica. And then come to chapter 4, which is where we're at, in those first eight verses, he sort of shifts gears. He's talked about how much they love one another. He's talked about how committed they are. He's talked about how they stand firm in the light of persecution, how they're living out in a culture that is, is counter to the gospel, counter to the message of scripture, counter to the very character of God. He describes all these different elements about the church. But in the beginning of chapter four, he comes to probably the most critical element that describes the church. Let me read this section for you. And um, I'm gonna come back and highlight a couple of things. And so don't get too distracted because it's a distracting passage of scripture. Because right in the middle of this sort of call to holiness, this call to purity, he dives off into suggestions about how to handle sexual immorality. And we were going to cover those. I say we were going to cover those. We've made a decision this morning um, off some counsel last night and some counsel this morning. We're not going to go. We're going to pick that back on another day. For one thing, um, we forgot the children's ministry tradition of leaving all the children in the church during Lord's Supper. And this was definitely going to be a PG-13 message. Um, all of our young adults that we talked to said, you know what? I don't want to spend the afternoon explaining why pastor talked about nothing but sex this morning in the message. So we're going to come back to that. But if you're on the version Bible app and you go to our live events and you go there, the notes are always included for you. You can see those five points. They're just simple life hacks that apply to the issue of sexual morality that you just, you need to evade it. You need to run. Paul says, just keep away from it. Avoid it. You need to control. I mean, it makes sense. 
You need to understand the environment that you're in. And ours is a very sexualized environment, so it's, it's a difficult environment. You need to understand who you are as an influence and who you listen to for your influence or these, these things. And of course, always consider the consequences. We're going to hold that for another time. And we're going to listen to the Paul, the Apostle Paul, call this church and say to them, look, you're to be a holy church. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse, verse 8, I mean, let me get that right, chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to end in verse 8. In that verse, that very first verse of chapter 4, he says, additionally then, brothers and sisters, so in light of everything else I've told you, I want to remind you of this. I want to call you to this. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, our church family, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, a, a powerful and important word that just simply means that setting apart that happens. That's where the holiness comes in. We're not like we used to be after we meet Jesus. We are conforming ourselves to his image, to his character, and that process is sanctification. That process is setting us apart. You're doing this, can continue to do this because this is God's will. And then here's the section he, he says, look, here's some real practical everyday advice, things that you have to deal with every day in a hypersexualized community and culture, which Thessalonica was that way, and we're that way today in Western culture. This process, keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how you are to control his body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is the avenger of these offenses. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This call to holiness there ought to be one thing that truly differentiates a church from every other organization, and that should be the character of God. We're a godly people. We were an ungodly people before. We followed our own ways, our own paths, and our own desires, and we followed them all the way to destruction, to our own destruction, and in many cases to the destruction of our families and to the destructions of our community and the destruction of our culture. Ultimately, our world, our selfishness drove us away from God, but in a moment of humility, we acknowledged and we stopped and we paused and said, look, this isn't working. I'm going to ask Jesus to be a part of my life. I am going to simply and honestly believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed he is, and Jesus never claimed to be anything other than God himself. And I'm going to ask God in Jesus to forgive me of my sin, to cleanse me of that unrighteousness, to give me a new life that he promises he'll give me as a new creation designed the way I was originally designed as his worshiper, as his follower, and that is characterized by my holiness. 
I still can't attain holiness. I still can't accomplish it on my own. But through the power of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, as, as Paul mentions here, that Spirit of God, that person in the Godhead who comes into our lives, who lives in us, lives through us, gives us the righteousness of Christ. If you take just James as he is, he's just an empty vessel with no righteousness, characterized and described by unrighteousness. But you take that empty vessel and you yield it to God and you trust in Christ and his work on the cross and the forgiveness that that death brought us and the power that that resurrection gave us, you'd make that decision in that moment and that empty vessel was filled with the very spirit of God. And that's how holiness is attained. Not by us suddenly figuring out the rules and obeying the rules but by us suddenly entering into the relationship with a holy God who desires us to be holy with him and gives us what we're incapable of accomplishing on our own. Gives us holiness. Last night, a friend of mine came up at the night of worship over at the depot, the big plaza area in downtown Tombow, where eight churches over the last six months, a, a, a vision birthed out of intercessors, birthed out of our prayer warriors. It wasn't birthed out of the staff. It wasn't birthed out of leadership. It was birthed out of those who were praying every day for God to do something. That the church would gather as one church and eight churches partnered together. Eight core leaders came together and said, we'll make this happen and we want God to be there. And that's what we prayed. Every month, many of us, every day for the last six months that God would be there. A friend of mine came up to me part of the way through the worship time and said, hey, James, I got to tell you, something, something really unusual happened when I came here tonight. I rode over here on my golf cart. I came, I entered up onto the property, and as soon as I came on the property, I found myself in the presence of God. I found myself feeling God around me. And I pulled a little further and I started listening to the people sing. And I just got covered in goosebumps because I thought, this is so real. God is so real in this moment. That's what the church is supposed to be. You know, the Apostle Paul describes a scenario in which unbelievers walk into a congregation who's in the middle of worshiping and their conclusion is, God is in this place. He told that to the church in Corinth. And we've seen it lived out generation after generation after generation. That godliness and holiness describes and characterizes the church. Because this church doesn't belong to us. This church isn't our ingenuity. It's not our idea. This is birthed out of the heart of God. He wants his people to gather and he wants to move and work and transform in our midst when we gather. So Paul starts encouraging several different times. I isolated five different phrases in these eight verses where he calls us to that. In verse one, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. It, it's a plea. That we, we want you to be a holy people. We desire to see holiness lived out. And our culture and our time needs to see holiness lived out. They need to hear the message. 
that the grace of God through his mercy given to us when we trust in Jesus changes who we are and changes the environment we step into. God is in this place. And we plead for that. Again in verse 1, that we should understand, we should learn, we, we should look at every aspect of our lives and understand how to live in order to please God. Jesus paid so much for my sin. If I spend all of my life and all of eternity attempting to repay it, I will never come close. Which I needed because I wasn't capable of paying the debt that my sin had had, had, had accumulated. But Jesus stepped in and did it for me. I want to live in order to please God. We know the commands he says in, in verse 2. We, we know what to do. They were, what they were taught, we were taught, we know what to do. We have a basic internal instinct as a result of our teaching and our learning and our growth. We know what to do. Let's just do it. And in the cases we have been doing it, let's continue to do it. As, as Paul says again in verse 1, do this even more. In verse 3, for this is God's will. This is his desire for sanctification. He wants his church different. He doesn't want us offensive. And he doesn't want us incapable of reaching a very lost world. But he wants the distinctiveness of his presence known in our midst. And not just when we gather for church here in a building or out on a plaza. But tomorrow when we go to school. We want our schoolmates. We want our friends we want them to know we're believers in Jesus. Tomorrow when we go to work, for some we won't even wait till tomorrow. It's at home when we go home this afternoon or we log off a live stream and we get ready to meet with whoever's in our home, our, our spouses or our kids or even if we're by ourselves on live stream to know that when I see somebody later this afternoon, they know I'm a follower of Jesus. They know that I've committed my heart to him and his righteousness now lives through me. Because in verse 7, Paul says, God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. It's a call to holiness. And I can't think of any more practical way to experience that call than to remind ourselves of the moment that made holiness possible. We'll celebrate it over the next several weeks. We're two weeks out from Easter. That horrible and yet magnificent week of Easter. When Jesus was executed, and nobody understood it at the times, and sometimes we forget it now, my sins were executed with him. I like the way Paul told the church of Galatia. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not me who lives. I died on that cross when Jesus died on that cross. But the hope and the greatness of it is, on that third day, when they showed up and they found the tomb empty and they were confused and, and uncertain about what was taking place, an angel said, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He's alive. My sins died on the cross with Jesus and my entire life was born again and resurrected with Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. 
I am an eternal creature who will live in the presence of God because Jesus forgave me of my sin and now lets his righteousness, his holiness live in me. And we'll take the bread in a minute as a response, as as a response of our heart to remember the pain Jesus went through that week. And then we'll additionally take the cup and remind us that it was his shed blood, it was the literal shedding of his blood that made it possible for us to have this righteousness in us. We'll reset the drive and the commitment to follow Jesus in holiness by pausing in worship together to remember the price he paid so that today, holiness, godliness, righteousness are attainable goals because Jesus wants to do the work in me. I don't have to do it myself. I just have to yield and let him do that work.